I'm getting my Kleenex out. Hi everybody, my name is Diana and I'm an addict. And I'm very grateful to be here. You know, I'm originally from the West End area. I was a very active member in the West End area and I moved away from lovely Southern California about seven years ago. And uh, being back here this weekend, I've kind of gone down memory lane. Uh, good memories, memories I would like to forget about. <laughs> um, some amazing times and some amazing uh, connections with uh, people in this fellowship. So being here this weekend has been um, very healing for me because I tend to put myself on a head trip and I'll take you a little down, I'll take you there with me. <clears throat> and the trip is usually goes like this. No one likes me. Oh, they're remembering that time I did whatever. And so I'll put myself on this trip. And then uh, when I do that, what happens is that I completely separate myself from even having a connection to the convention, let alone anybody else in, in the rooms or in the hallway or in the lobby or up the elevator or whatever. And I didn't do that this weekend. And the reason why I didn't do that this weekend is because I have done some amazing work in terms of healing. And the message that I'm going to share with you today is about how we rob ourselves from what is really readily available to us in the steps and in that relationship that we find with the loving God or higher power or spirit or whatever you want to call it. What I've come to understand is that my disease does not want to see me connect to anything. God, uh, the people that I love, uh, myself, you know, my life. And, um, you know, some of the, my biggest poor choices in my journey here have been the biggest teachers so I really work hard on not judging another individual that is going through something that doesn't look all that pretty. Because I know that getting to the other side of that is something magical, something amazing. You know, I have 30 years clean and it's, a, it's amazing that I have that much time. Thank you so much. I say that for one reason, and that is, is that Narcotics Anonymous has given me that. You know, I, there's no ego attached to having that kind of clean time. I was 21 years old when I got here, and the last thing that I thought would happen for me was that I was going to be here for 30 years. That wasn't even on the agenda. <laughs> What was on the agenda was some court cases that I was facing, and I had ulterior motives. I love what Travis shared last night, that it really doesn't matter how we get here or why we're here, um, that we can do um, some things, I don't know how you worded it, but it was amazing, it was profound. 
uh, something like, you know, we can do the wrong thing for the right reason. And pretty much that was me. You know, I was 21 years old. I had some court cases I was looking at and, um, you know, and I thought going to a treatment center was the easier, softer way. And um, unbeknownst to me, um, I found the miracle of Narcotics Anonymous. And I've been here ever since. You know, relapse is not part of my story, and I don't believe that it has to be. You know, I believe that um, we're very courageous people, but I also believe that we're misguided, and we get uh, we listen to poor information, and it's usually the stuff that goes on in between these ears. And that's why it's so important to have sponsors. That's why it's so important to have this, the literature and the steps and all of that, because really that is the roadmap. And I also believe that the steps can go as deep as we want them to go. That, and I, I believe that the reason why I'm where I'm at today in my very life, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically, is because I believe that very statement. You know, I believe that the steps can teach me how to not to destroy the very thing that I cherish the most. I believe that by me working on myself and, and uh, continuing to connect with my higher power, I have a chance of doing it different and having a different experience. That I don't always have to feel bad because I acted out on a character defect or I isolated one more time because that's my bugaboo. I love to isolate. You know, I, I, um, I'll share a little bit about where I come from. Um, I'm from Rhode Island originally. And I was raised by a father that was a womanizer. He was an addict. He was the dealer. Um, he was very handsome. He slept with every single one of my girlfriends. Um, my twin sister and I used to go to bars with him and prop us up on bar stools and my twin sister and I used to play this little game about picking up men in the bar and taking them to the back alley and then rummage, you know, kind of like the, the, the little kids in uh, South America. I mean, that's kind of like what my twin sister and I did, not so drastic, but uh, so I learned how to be a con. I learned how to be a manipulator, and I learned how to use my body to get what I wanted. And it was just a really weird way to grow up, because we would leave the bar and then we would go back home, and I was telling a story to somebody last night about how I grew up. Here's my house. It's not really a house, it was a trailer in the woods of Rhode Island, and the bathroom was this pop-up trailer with a porta potty no running water, you know, we had to bring all the water in, um, and uh, yeah, and everybody, and, and it was like this little island, this little strip of, circle of area that the people that lived there, and I always had this feeling that they were in the witness protection program. <laughs> You know, everyone had a kind of a weird story to tell. Everyone kind of told a, you know, no, nothing was true. And, and I knew that their names really weren't their names. And it was just kind of a weird way. And it definitely tapped into my own um, disease where, because fantasy was my first drug of choice. You know, I used to go out in the woods of Rhode Island and, you know, I would conjure up these amazing adventures and, and I would go to these uh, uh, wonderful places in my brain. 
You know, and that was my first experience of finding something outside of me to make me feel different or make me to, you know, forget. Because for me, you know, I wasn't, I'm very much like Travis. I wasn't this hardcore dope fiend. I certainly acted like I was when I walked in here, you know, but um, I was, I was dead when I got here. In every sense of the word, dead. There was nothing about me that was alive. And when, the first time I picked up that substance, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I chased it like I chased everything else in my life. And I wanted this thing to fix me. And I used this substance, whatever it was, because I was that garbage can addict out there. I used that substance so I didn't have to feel and I didn't have to deal with reality. Because life on life's terms for this addict was excruciating. And I had zero tools. So, um, you know, my twin sister and I, we took a train cross country uh, from Rhode Island to California. And, um, you know, we got here and of course, 20 minutes later, we're in some guy's house getting loaded. And, you know, um, and I don't know about you, but I had many red flags along the way that kind of went boing, and that was one of them, where it's was like, okay, die, because I always blamed my father. I thought it was the way I was being raised, and, you know, having a father like I had, that was the reason why I used, and, you know, when I got to California, and, you know, the light bulb went off, and, you know, I, I ignored it. I ignored the little voice, you know, and uh, eight months after my twin sister and I got to California, she died behind this disease. And I will never be the same, ever. And that's been 31 years. I will never be the same. But this is what we do, you know. I, um, I stuffed as much stuff I could in my body just to be in oblivion. That was the kind of addict I was. If I was in oblivion, everything was copacetic. If I was unaware of what was going on um, in my surroundings, I was good. And I did that for a while. And then um, what ended up happening is that I started getting arrested. I started getting arrested just like my twin sister. And I ended up in this wonderful place that's no longer here, surprisingly enough, Civil Brand. <laughs> I frequent that place many times. And the last time that I got arrested, I was looking at some time. And um, it was the first time in my life where I, there was something inside of me that had a desire to do it different. And, um, you know, I was at court. I don't, you know, the sequence of events that is kind of a blur to me, but I was at court and all of a sudden I heard that I was able to go to a treatment center and. You know, and there I go, I'm off and running. You know, and I went to a treatment center in Pasadena and, um, you know, I walked in thinking I was hip, slick and cool. Um, <clears throat> and my defense mechanism for many, 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 many years around here was um, sarcasm. And I didn't use sarcasm as a way of being funny. I used sarcasm in a way to keep you at arm's length. And I used sarcasm in a way where um, I, would, I would be very hurtful with my words. 
and um, consequently I wasn't very liked uh, when I first got here and you know and of course you know I, I hid I hid that feeling of how it felt inside not being liked as like I don't care but I did I totally cared but I was petrified I was absolutely petrified to let anybody in my life you know because love to me I did not trust it was something that um, I didn't believe in you know, I just didn't believe in. And when I would come to these, um, to the meetings and they would say, let us love you until you can love yourself, I, I wanted to run every single time I heard that statement, but I stayed. And the reason why I stayed is that I saw something in the rooms. And in fact, I saw it on a, a friend's face t this morning and I told him how I viewed his face. I saw, I saw a light that I've never seen in another addict. And that is what kept me coming back, was that, was that softness that I started seeing in people's faces. It was just like an amazing transformation and I thought that will never happen to me. Um, but you know, my first sponsor, she was, she was an amazing woman. And, uh, her name was Dorvalina. And she, she sponsored me for the first six years here. And she taught me about what love meant. And this is what she taught me. She told, this is what she taught me, that love isn't about expecting something from you. Love isn't about having a hidden agenda and if you, do, if you don't do this, then I won't do that. Or if you do this, then I'll do that. You know, she taught me that love was pure. That love was sacred. And that love was possible. And then she taught me about forgiveness. She taught me how I could forgive myself. And that, to me, has been the biggest gift I've received in Narcotics Anonymous. Not some, you know, yes, freedom from active addiction, but forgiveness, I mean, true forgiveness. On being able to look at myself in the mirror and good, bad, and the ugly, and forgive myself and have true acceptance of who I am. And I, I'm just completely blown away with the transformation that has happened to this addict. You know, because I wasn't of acceptance of myself. I didn't love myself. There was really nothing about me that I thought was great. In fact, the voice that I heard every single night that I put my head on the pillow was this, that I'm of no value to you unless I blank, fill in the blank, whatever that is. That me and me alone was not valuable. That I had no place. And I know, I, don't, I know I'm not alone with that feeling. I think that's actually a universal feeling that we have here as addicts. And I think that's what, you know, when we see an addict so desperate come into the rooms, we know that inner knowing is what makes this work. You know, when we see an addict walk in in pain, or an addict with time with pain, or a sponsee that's reading their words on paper and getting in touch with something very deep inside of them, that universal uh, bond 
That's the therapeutic value of one addict helping another. It's not if I'm a good speaker. It's not if I've worked the step a million times. It's not if I'm, you know, uh, chairperson of this home group and, you know, whatever. It's that, that, that connection. And I'm gonna tell you that I just recently have gotten that connection. It's taken me 25 years here to get that connection. Because I was that addict that wore detachment as a badge of honor. You know, I thought it was the way to be, to be detached from my life. I lived my life for many, many years around here like a mechanical robot. You know, going through the motions, putting the smile on my face, and being a great sponsor because I was sponsoring the women that I sponsored the way I wanted to be sponsored. But I couldn't get there. Now I'm gonna talk about, I have no idea what time it is, or. How much time do I have? Okay. Okay. Um, okay. My my first sponsor, Dorvalina. At, uh, I had six years clean. She had 15 years clean, and she stopped going to meetings. She started doing other things, and um, those other things led her to believe that she wasn't an addict no longer, and she got loaded. And my whole foundation and my whole world was rocked. You know, and I was at a place where I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm going to get loaded too. You know, like somehow our sponsor just, somehow I thought that, you know, I was going to be striked loaded because my sponsor got loaded. And what I, what I came to understand was that this was my recovery to claim. That, you know, we have sponsors in our lives and we may look at these people that we are, uh, uh, telling our deeper secrets to as the reason why we're clean, but I'm here to tell you that it's our recovery to claim. That, you know, we choose certain people in our lives to help us, to guide us, to show us how to, how to do certain things, but, you know, this is my recovery. And, um, you know, I, um, I had to understand that and I had to get to a place of um, knowing inside my body that if I wanted to be clean, I would be clean. That it wasn't anybody that could keep me clean. There wasn't anybody that could give me the magic formula. The formula was within me. You know, um, but I'll tell you what I did because I'm an addict six years clean, so I'm having this trepidation about, am I gonna stay clean, am I gonna do this, da 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 da, and I decided to go back to Rhode Island to see my father, my using father, by the way. Um, and when I left Rhode Island six years prior, my father was doing really well, he had a beautiful home, and da 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 da, and then when I got there six years clean, he was sitting in, in a tent in the middle of a field, sitting there pulling out his teeth one by one, and that's where the disease took him. And it was just so devastating to see, you know, and um, I had a little brother that was in treatment and, I, and the day before I was supposed to leave to come back to California, I picked him up. You know how we do when we got a really juicy newcomer? <laughs> that, you know, you want to just 
save, you know? And that was my little brother. And I was shoving this, I was shoving it down his throat. I was just, I was trying to capture all the six years of clean time that I had into like four hours to this poor kid. God, I felt so bad for him. Um, but I, I, um, I didn't do one thing. And that was, is that I didn't give him a chance to talk about what was going on with him. And he didn't talk to me about his bugaboos or his demons. And um, when I dropped him off at the recovery house, he went in the front door, went out the back door, went out and got loaded, and he hung himself. And what I got in touch with was that, you know, we have some great sayings around here. One of them is, is that you stick with the winners. Um, and what I realized is that recovery doesn't happen by osmosis and that we can stick with the winners, but if we're not doing what the winners are doing, then we're missing the mark. Thank you. Um, we're missing the mark. And uh, when I left Rhode Island that time, I had to look at my father and say, Dad, if you can't get clean, I cannot do this with you anymore. It's too painful. And that was the hardest thing I had to do because my father was like a drug to me. I chased that man like I chased any drug. I, I wanted to please that man more than anything. I wanted his approval so bad that I would do whatever to get his approval. And when I walked away, I realized right then and there that I was claiming my recovery. That it didn't matter what he thought. It didn't matter if I was untrustworthy, because that was a big thing. You know, you had to be trustworthy. We had to know we could trust you. And it, and I just had to realize, realize. Sorry, I had to realize that. Um, I get very animated sometimes. I had to realize that um, my recovery came first. And when I came back to California, I dove right back in. I got a sponsor that sponsored me for the majority of my clean time. And uh, she, she was amazing. She taught me a lot about, especially the six and seven step. But I wanna share with you that the, uh, the time that I uh, sat down with this woman and asked her to sponsor me, she asked me a question. And the question was, Diana, how do you wanna be remembered when you die? And I just thought that was the oddest question to ask. Um, but, you know, I wanted to impress her, so I had to think long and hard, and, um, and I wanted to have the right answer. And I just kind of looked at her and I said, I want to be remembered as a woman that left her lived her life with integrity. And she literally went like this. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? <laughs> And, you know, I didn't even take offense to it because I kind of understood where she was coming from. We have, we're idealistic people. You know, we have these amazing views of the world and, you know, and how do we want to be and how we want to be perceived, you know? And, and let's just take the very simple wish that every single one of us has in this room to be clean. Every single one of us want to be clean one day at a time for the long haul. I mean, that's why we're here. But I, I, I'll just speak for myself, I forget the work that's involved to make sure that happens. And it's the same thing with me telling 
this woman that I wanted to be remembered as a person that lived her life with integrity. Because, you know, I, I'm very idealistic. I, didn't, I had no concept of the work that was involved with that. And the work that's involved with, you know, st being, living in integrity and being impeccable to your word is me meaning sometimes you're standing by yourself. And sometimes it's stepping into that light that I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm petrified of standing in my own light. Because that means if I stand in my own light, I have to acknowledge my assets and look at what's amazing about me. It's really easy for me to talk about how, how I beat myself up. It's really easy for me to talk about what my flaws are. But when, when I have to take a look at what's amazing about Diana, that to me is scary stuff. And it's no different than standing on a belief and standing tall and firm in that belief. And you may be the only one that believes that. And, and I've done that. I've done a lot of work. And that, when I first got up here, I, that's the work that I've been doing the last 15 plus years, is learning what it means to live my life in integrity, being impeccable to my word, which has been a mother. And I'm trying not to cuss either. And I want to share with you some of the things that have been amazing vehicles for me. <clears throat> I'm married. I'm married to a great guy. His name is Ham. I call him the mayor. Everyone knows Ham. Everyone wants to shake Ham's hands. You know, every, everyone loves Ham. And, and you know what? And I love that. I love that everyone loves Ham. You know, I think he's a great guy. And, um, you know, uh, we actually, the 24th, which is in, what, four days, we'll be celebrating 21 years of marriage, which is... Which is a miracle. If you, it, it's a miracle. That's all I can say. <laughs> um, you know, four years into our marriage, he got. Um, you know, we always knew he had hepatitis C, and you know, um, four years into our marriage, he got diagnosed with liver cancer, and um, you know, it was a hell of a ride. You know, and we both had to put our combat uniforms on just to get through it. You know, uh, chemo treatments, uh, going through our life savings to go back to Rochester, Minnesota, and uh, to the Mayo Clinic, and you know, it was just horrific. Two liver transplants, you know, him being on three machines to keep him alive, and it was just horrific. And um, you know, I went, one day we were in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, and I called my sponsor, and I was I was losing it. And I was just in self-pity, and I was just very self-centered about how I was feeling about this whole situation. And I was just, you know, I was kind of whining a little bit. And, um, and then so my sponsor said, die. You know, I, and I'm sure if I was there physically, she probably would have slapped me across the face a couple of times. But she goes, die. I go, what? She goes, remember that question I asked you when I, uh, you asked me to sponsor you? And I said, yeah. She goes, here's your opportunity. 
that when life is hard, it doesn't mean that it's happening to me. It doesn't mean that I'm the victim. It just means life has arrived on my doorstep and where is my toolbox? And do I, am I gonna be that person that's gonna support someone that is basically dying? Or am I gonna sit over here and feel sorry for myself? And she, she proceeded to tell me that, you know, integrity is about many things, but the biggest thing is learning how to get out of the way and keeping the ego in check. And so when I hung up on that phone, hung the phone up, I realized that I could do it differently. And one of my biggest dreams has always been to learn how to be in touch with my soft side. I was always that, that person that fought everything. You know, I always was ready. I had my dukes up, you know. I know that's probably not how you do it, but that's, <laughs> but I had my dukes up and I was ready to fight anything, you know, not physically, but verbally, emotionally, you get it, you understand what I'm saying. And when I hung up the phone, I realized that this was my opportunity not only to be there for someone that I really loved and was afraid for, but I could also utilize this opportunity to get in touch with something that I've never been in touch with before. And that was my soft side, that part of me that I keep hidden with my sarcasm, with my attitude, with my walls, with a lot of things. And that was 16 years ago when I had that epiphany. And the journey from 16 years ago to today has been the most transforming, most amazing journey I've been on. So, you know, when I hear an old timer tell me that more will be revealed, I believe them. And when I hear an old timer tell me that the road gets narrower, I believe them because that's been my experience. You know, I, um, and unfortunately, and I know I, I'm no exception to most people um, in these rooms, is that pain is an amazing motivator, you know? So I went to the uh, intensive care unit at where Ham was at, and I, for the first time in my life, started singing. Don't worry, Richard, I won't sing to you. Um, I started singing, and I started finding my voice through singing. And um, I'm not a professional singer. I just like to sing in the, the, the shower or, you know, wherever, I don't care. If you want to listen to me sing, I'll sing. Um, so I started singing and um, I started getting in touch with something that was just so pure. It scared me. And so I would only let it out just you know, it would, she would only come out every once in a while. Um, but I started singing to him in, in the intensive care unit, and I started to realize that I didn't need to be this person holding up this pillar of nothingness, but I thought it was something big, you know, and uh, there's just been some amazing journeys since I've been here. And I, I'm gonna talk a little bit about it. Um, Ham and I split up. Um, because we couldn't take off the combat uniform. We were both fighting each other. 
um, we got, we got, both of us got into a very dark place. But I'm going to talk about what happened for me. Is that after Ham got better and, you know, you know, we were kind of getting into the groove with, you know, our life uh, post-transplant, um, I stopped talking about what was really going on with me. And I started isolating. And I'm a master. I'm a master at isolating. I know how to do it really well. And it almost killed me. You know, I started, um, people would call and I would uh, be distracted about something else. So people consequently stopped calling. You know, or I stopped making myself available. Or I stopped going to conventions. I would go to my home group meeting and do what I had to do. Um, because I, I didn't want to get loaded, but I didn't have anything else going on inside of me. You know, and I started pushing everybody away. The work that I have done up until that point really stopped. And then Ham had this bright idea to move to bumfuck Prescott, Arizona. <laughs> it's a one horse town. And it got bad. It got really bad for us. And, um, you know, and I'm sure, I know I'm not alone with this, what I'm about to say, but, you know, I've always had the fantasy of just kind of escaping my life and going on this, this trip, and that's exactly what I did. I escaped. I, I, he was gone one weekend, and I left. And really, that wasn't the right thing to do. But it was all I could do at the time. That's how desperate I was. And that's how dark I become. And that's how lonely I felt. And I remember one night on Cattle Track Road in Prescott, Arizona. Some of these streets names are pretty uh, quirky. And I called my friend Lori. And it was 15 degrees outside, and I think I had a t-shirt like this, and I walked up and down the street, just crying and wailing and surrendering all at the same time. And I realized right then and there that I needed to do something different, and that I needed to do what, the, what my disease was telling me I had to do the complete opposite. And I had to get back to basics. This is at 23 years clean. And I had to get back to basics. And, um, you know, my battery, I, I lost the battery in my cell phone, talking to her for about an hour and a half, I'm sure. <laughs> and, um, and I realized that I remembered, not realized, I remembered one of the, the, the core things that I learned as a newcomer was that love is pure. Love is sacred, and that when you love someone, there is no expectation. And my friend Lori showed me love that night. And I'll be forever grateful. And I got back to basics. I asked Lori to sponsor me. I started doing what I needed to do to get back on track. 
And um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the last seven years, and then I'll, I'll shut up. I started to remember a lot of things about what made me who I am. You know, when I uh, wrote the, uh, my fourth step at, in my, you know, 23, 24 years clean, you know, in our pamphlet, and I've, I've skimmed over it many, many, many times. You know, the last part where it says our assets, you know, and uh, when I was doing my inventory, I spent more time looking at what was good about me because I spent way too much time looking at what was wrong or what I felt was wrong or what was bad or whatever. And I started looking at what was amazing about me. And I, uh, um, and I started nurturing those assets within myself. And I started taking risks. I started to trust that my higher power was gonna walk with me through this risk-taking adventure that I was on. Because really, that's what it was. I was taking a risk. And the first thing that I did was I lowered the walls. I started to let people in. I started to get, I started to touch this part of me that is vulnerable, that is naive, that is silly, that is lighthearted, that is, has um, a huge imagination. I started getting in touch with that person. I started to remember that person prior to ever picking up a substance. You know, that, that, that little kid that used to play tea parties with imaginary friend. I started getting in touch with that energy. And I started to nurture it. And I started to understand that uh, a lot of the fight that was in me was all in my head. It was all stuff that I was making up. And, and a lot of it is just because of the messages that I uh, told myself. It's not even so much of what I heard when I was growing up, it's what I told myself. It's how I got through things. It's my survival skills. You know, I, you know, my not trusting worked very well when I was out there using, but it didn't work so well in here, especially if I'm trying to get a spiritual life and a spiritual connection. I had to, I had to start with a clean slate. I had to understand that trust needed to happen if I was going to find freedom. You know, the theme of this weekend is freedom, living clean. There's many freedoms that happen around here, and there's also many miracles. And most of the time we miss the mark of what freedom really is. Freedom is from active addiction. But freedom, for me, is about exploring life in the world around me. What is being a productive member of society? What does that really mean? Does it mean that we just get up and go to a job? Pay our bills? No. I think that's a small part of it. But for me, being productive is making a difference. By being an example with the people I work with, by being an example to my neighbors, by being an example to the people I touch. 
and you know, to make Narcotics Anonymous proud, <laughs> you know. I'm just being silly. I try to do that when I get nervous. Um, that's what being a productive member of society means to me. And not taking this for granted. You know, service is a big part of what we do here because the true essence of our steps tells us so that the only way that we can keep what we have is that we have to give it away. And recovery isn't what we're doing here, it's what we do at home. Opening up our books, writing on the steps, getting on our knees, asking a loving God to help us, working with our sponsor, working with sponsees, being of service to my professional world, or being to service to my home, to my husband, to my family. It doesn't stop just at the rooms. You know, we all need a sense of belonging somewhere. And that's why meetings are so important, because it tells me that I'm not alone, that I belong to something much bigger than me. But my personal recovery and my spiritual journey are not in these rooms. This is where I practice patience and tolerance and you know all those wonderful things that we have to learn around here. But the work really is about what I'm doing inside myself. Um, 16 years ago, I decided to go back to school. And so I started really little. I decided, oh, I'll go to massage school. So I went to massage school. I'm a nurse, and I, I decided to go back. Um, so I went to massage school, and then I did crystals, and then I did color therapy, and everyone was going, oh, she's doing that voodoo stuff. And, and then I decided to get serious about it, and I, I um, ended up going um, back to school. And February of last year, I, I got my doctorate in naturopathy. So I'm a doctor. <laughs> and what I've come to understand is that I can learn so much more out of these rooms as well that sometimes we rob ourselves from amazing experiences by thinking that Narcotics Anonymous is it. it. Certainly is my life. Certainly has given me my life, but it's not it. That we rob ourselves to think that, you know, because when we, when we get here, we're so limited by our active addiction and that we live in this box. We live in this very small world. And for many years around here, I think it's essential for us to live in a small world and really become integrated um, into these rooms and into this fellowship and really realize what it means to live this program. But to live your life is what this is all about. And I'm learning how to do that. And when I went back to school and I started taking one class at a time and you know one test at a time and one paper at a time and all of those things, I, I, I learned that I can expand myself in other ways and still be an example of what Narcotics Anonymous is all about. Because I don't believe that this is limiting. I believe the possibilities are endless. And every single time I sit down and write on a step, I get a deeper understanding of what this is all about for this addict. I get a deeper connection with my higher power. 
And I also get a deeper connection about who I am. You know, the 12th step tells us that as a result of working these steps, we have a spiritual awakening. And then we're able to carry the message to other addicts. And I think we hear a result of working the steps. I think we hear carrying the message to other addicts, but I think we don't always spend a lot of time with um, what that spiritual awakening is. To me, a spiritual awakening is being introduced to the true essence of who I am. That person that I am just getting to know, that is a spiritual awakening to me. Is sifting through the murk, getting, getting through the darkness, getting through some really sticky, icky stuff. And then I'm, I'm just left with me. And I've hid me for a very long time. You know, I know I'm supposed to be the spiritual speaker, and I hope that, you know, I was able to carry a message of uh, the spirit, because that's really what this is about for me. You know, I love Narcotics Anonymous for many, many reasons, but the biggest one is, is that you don't tell me what kind of God I need to have. You tell me that I can have any God I want, as long as it's outside of me and bigger than me. And, and my spiritual path and my spiritual belief is way bigger than I am. You know, and I'm just a minuscule of what this is about. But I also understand that I'm part of the whole. And that my actions affect the whole. And that's how I live my life. And that's how I live a spiritual life. And that's how I practice these principles in all my affairs. Is that I remember that I'm part of the whole. And then if I come from the right place, and if I come from a place of love, then I'm doing okay. I fall short many, many times. I'm a, I'm a human being. And I'm learning at 30 years clean how not to beat myself up because of those mistakes. You know, I had a sponsor one tell me that we grow up in public around here. You know, our shit is out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know. Um, but, and it doesn't have to be pretty. And my process has not always been pretty. But um, my process has molded me into an, a pretty amazing person. So lately, after, uh, when I'm done speaking, I always um, end with this. Uh, my assets. I love my voice. I think I have an amazing voice. It's deep. It's meaningful. And sultry. <laughs> <laughs> I love my personality. I think I'm quirky in a lot of ways, and I love that about me. I beat to my own drum, and I love that about me. You know, my, my coworkers at my job, they laugh at me all the time because I come up with these weird things, uh, weird, weird sayings, and they go, where in the world did you get that? Um, and I have no idea where I get half of them, but you know, it's just me, it's just my personality. I have a wonderful sense of humor. And through all of um, trials and tribulations of life and joy and happiness in life, I've learned how to have a sense of humor about it all. I'm a wonderful friend. I am loyal. I will be with you no matter what. I'm, I'm an amazing sponsor because I sponsor the way I want to be sponsored. And I think I'm even more amazing because I've learned how to really give of myself and not hold back.
There's no more walls with me. And that's an amazing gift. And that's the freedom that I'm experiencing right now, is that there's no more walls. I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an amazing teacher. I teach. I'm very patient. I got lots of tolerance. I, um, I, there's, a, there's a lot of things about Diana that I love. And when I walked into the doors of Narcotics Anonymous, there was nothing about me that I thought was likable. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I've come a long way. And coming back to San Fernando Valley and doing this convention has been the most amazing healing experience for me. And I want to thank all of you that remember me from when I used to live here, coming up to me and showing me that you love me, because that means the world to me. Because ultimately, that's all we all want, is to be loved and accepted. But I've come to understand that it needs to come from me first before I can feel it from you. And I was really able to feel it this weekend. And um, I hope I touched one addict in here tonight, to, uh, this morning. I hope you walk away going, you know what? That woman had something to say. And maybe I can do it too, one day at a time. And thank you so much for allowing me to share. Jimmy Cave, time and uh, the people in the back said they couldn't hear me the man stood up in the front and he said well I can hear him so I'll change places with you <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that one you know uh, my name is Jimmy I'm a grateful recovered member of AA That's where I started, but I'm the most grateful member, I think, of NA Tonight. For the 12-step call that you have made on me since I've been sitting up here. I'm seldom at a loss for words. But I'm almost nonplussed right now. You know? How could anybody come up here and say anything after what we've just seen? You know? If we only put one tenth of the effort into working the steps of recovery that we've seen demonstrated here in the last half hour. <laughs> Is there even one person in this room right now that doesn't know that this works? 
You know, I got a reputation for being pretty corny at times. But all I could think of a while ago when I was sitting there listening and watching and feeling, feeling what was going on. Because that's where I live in feeling. I know you do too. I could only think of one thing. And I'm going to steal it from a TV show that you've all seen one time or another. And whether you like it or not, I got to say it. No? From New York, it's Saturday Night Live. dream, the possible dream, is a group started not long ago in uh, Montana, no, not Montana, yes it was Montana, and they called themselves the possible dream, that's the name of their group, and that, that ties right in with the impossible dream also, it's no longer the impossible dream, we know it works. It's a little thing in the little white book, you know, that it ends up by saying, the big lie, you know, is dead. No longer will society or the addict accept the fact that they can't recover. We do recover. <laughs> Recovery is the most important asset that we have. And it comes from the steps. And simplicity is what is so hard, I think, for most of us to grasp in the beginning. Simplicity is the program. I don't know whether I'm even going to say anything that I got notes here for tonight. I never do. You know, I make notes and then I forget them. You know? Sometimes I leave them in the room. One time I left them home. Yeah. Yeah. I generally like to talk off the cuff anyway. I may refer to it if I forget what I'm saying. Because you know? I'm not all here yet either, you know. <laughs> but I want to thank the people that made it possible for me to come to New York today and to be here tonight. The message is not in words so much. It's in what we've seen right now, you know. We're almost acting like real people, aren't we? <laughs> and you know why? Because we are. We're possibly the most real people in the world. I'd like to tie in. I would like to tie in what I said a minute ago about no longer will society or the addict accept the big lie that we no longer recover, you know, in that respect. We can't accept it because we know reality when we touch it. Something again in the little white book that says, and I remember that because it was such a strange thing to be when I remember feeling reality again after so many years of not knowing exactly what it was, living that life of illusion, and to feel time, to know what time was. Time was something meant nothing, you know. I tried to kill time. I tried to kill myself, just as you did. Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, I'll probably do what I do very often. I talk to myself most of it up here. This is part of my form of contemplation. 
to think seriously and realistically and within space and time. You know, I was always so far out. Space and time meant nothing, you know. But to feel it and to feel what's going on and to appreciate the things that are happening right now, you know. To feel it deeply, because we do feel deeply. That's one of our big problems. My problem was I was too idealistic. I expected too much of life. I wanted more of what there was. And I tried to fill my life as you have, with the drugs and the booze, the bar rooms and the bedrooms, you name it. We've done it, you know. We can't con each other. What were we looking for? A better way to live, a better thing to have going for us. I remember my first visit to New York. I'll never forget it. I relive part of it again today. You know? Twelve and a half years old when I came to this country and I didn't want to come here. I wanted to go to Australia. But my family came here, so I had to come with them. You know? And we sailed into New York Harbor. And I was up at the crack of dawn because I knew we were going to land that morning and I wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. I'd heard about it all my life. Because I love freedom. I've always loved freedom. And I love it more today than I ever did. You know? And I watched that statue as I got closer and closer to it. Not as close as I got today. You know? That's a beautiful lady. And we come into Ellis Island. Am I glad that place is closed? <clears throat> I don't know how many of you here or your parents came in through Ellis Island, but that's an experience that I never want to forget. It's indelibly marked in my memory, and I was scared. I had three brothers and a sister with me, and they were all younger than I. And my mother was sick, and she was in another part of Ellis Island, and nobody spoke English but me. And I couldn't find anybody to talk to to ask what was going on. We had a great big tag on us about this big, like cattle. And finally, I found one man who spoke excellent English. He liked to scare me to death. When he first walked over to me, he heard me talking to somebody about, find me somebody who speaks English. And nobody understood me. And he came over and he had the great hat and the great coat. He was a white Russian, and he's the man who befriended me on Ellis Island and helped us through the three days that we spent there because a man that most of you probably have only read about in the history books had just died. And he was laying in state here waiting to be buried in this country, President Hardy. And they kept us on Ellis Island for three and a half days. And I went to school on the roof over there on Ellis Island. And all I did when I was up there was watch that statue. You know, one of these days I was going to get off that island because I hate to be tied up. I hate to be locked down. But nothing bothers me worse, and I'm going to take my coat off because I don't even like that. <laughs> I like to be free, and I like to be easy, and sometimes I'm pretty hard on myself, and sometimes I'm too easy on myself. But when I came through <clears throat> that experience on Ellis Island, we're just getting ready to leave. We were coming to shore. And I saw this man. 
with his wife and his son that I went to school with in Ellis Island. He was the other who spoke a little bit of English. And a baby, about six months old, there were refugees from Russia at that time, after the revolution. And I went over to him and I thanked him for helping me and my brothers. And I said, when are you going ashore? Are you coming with us? And he said, no, they're sending us back. We're being deported. And I said, what's going to happen to you when you're deported, when you go back? He said, we will probably die. Can you forget things like that? I can't, you know. Not in the light of what's going on in the world today. I know most people in this room uh, don't even remember 1923. Never mind they've lived this long, you know. I don't know how many people are my age, but age is unimportant. So things that have molded us and formed us, they've probably helped to make us what we are. And thank God we're all a little bit different, you know. That's the diversity of addiction. Addiction is the same. Makes us all one of a kind. But we're all different people. And that's the beautiful part. I mean, I reach anybody at any given meeting and anything I say. But maybe you can. Maybe you only picture. Maybe you're the only concept of N.A. that anybody will ever see in their entire life. Sometimes I get pretty wild, you know. So far I haven't cussed at all. What's going on here? I get too serious. I get very serious about this program. It is life and death. But I have a lot of fun in life, believe me. Uh, I'm a cut up, you know. I like to raise hell. Still do it now and again. I invite a girl up to my room. I don't think she'll come. <laughs> Betty, I was only kidding. <laughs> That's for my wife. <laughs> Or there was times, you know. There was times. <laughs> it's just that I have found one of the finest women in the world, you know. Another addict. 13 years on this program, and she's got a better program a lot of times than I have, I'll tell you that. She's the most honest person I've ever met in my entire life. My first wife was very much like her. She was a very honest woman. So I guess somebody has to make up for my lying, cheating, stealing, and so forth. <laughs> I think whatever gods we believe in, you know, will understand things like that. Because I really think that we do, we find, we find the world's best women. That is the male finds the world. I don't know whether the men are the best men, but I know the women are the best women I've ever met. <laughs> Somebody told me, he said, if you go to New York, maybe you'd better carry some extra flashlight batteries and a flashlight because the lights might go out. I said, hell, I used to be able to get around these streets when it was dark years ago, you know. I haven't been in New York for 45 years, you know. Even that's older than most of you sitting here in the room tonight, you know. Yeah, they told me all these things, you know, that, uh, well, they did tell me a few things that I found to be true. They told me really there aren't too many uh, problems with drugs around New York City. <laughs> Where did you people come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not too many illegal drugs floating around. 
know the NYPD's got everything pretty well under control? <laughs> but Terry, Terry told me that. <laughs> so they told me, you know you don't have anything to worry about. And I know it's true, because right after I got off the plane, only two people approached me. Yeah. So I can't be too serious. But we damn near did have a little bit of trouble at the airport, you know. He's carrying one of my bags, and one of the other boys is carrying another one of my bags. And uh, here we see three people in uniform, you know, with green berets, come right up in front of us. You know. I thought, what the hell is going on? I know green berets, you know. I always watch those green berets. And uh, we tried to go around this side, and they stepped right in front of us. We tried to go around this side, and they stepped in front of us. We tried to go through the middle, and they just blocked us, you know. I looked at Terry, and he looked at me, you know, and I thought, what's going on here? You know, uh, we addicts always have uh, something come up, you know. Uh, we can always figure something out. So we looked at each other, and we bought a half a dozen boxes of Girl Scout cookies, and then they left us alone. I told you that uh, my mind gets fuzzy when I get up and try to talk because I like to sit down at a table with three or four people and chew the fat or get in the room like we did until about five o'clock this morning, uh, comparing notes and running the program down to each other, not cutting up old touches, you know. Uh, that, that's nowhere. Uh, it, it helps a little bit if you've got a newcomer and uh, you think that's the best way to identify, but. A newcomer looks right through us, sees right through us, he knows what the hell's going on. We can't kid each other. I can't con you, and you sure as hell can't con me, you know. I'll catch up with you sooner or later. I do get a little over-trusting at times and trust people a little too much, but I ain't been burnt that much, you know. It hasn't hurt me that much. And if they needed something, they got it, so that's it, you know. But I, uh, <clears throat> I have something here, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't memorize it because my memory is not as good as it used to be. Although it's better than, the, than it was, you know. <clears throat> you know, Ogden Nash was a favorite of mine, and I guess a favorite maybe of some of you, uh, in the ways he used to write things. He, he could get to the core of something and explain it better than uh, take me three pages to write, and he could explain it in two lines, you know. And he wrote something once, you know, and I'm going to read it to you here. It said, Often the stilly night, when the mind is fumbling fuzzily, I brood about how little I know, and I know that little so muzzily. Her slumber's chains have bound me. I think it would suit me nicely if I knew one-tenth of the little I know, but I knew that tenth precisely, you know? And uh, that's what I get, you know, if I can just remember one-tenth of the things that I know, uh, it'd be fine. So and then he goes on to say, gently my eyelids close, I'd rather be good than clever. And I'd rather have my facts all wrong than have no facts whatever, you know? And sometimes that's the way it is with me. My facts are not quite right. I haven't given myself enough time to think them through. But, you know, as time goes on, I do get enough time to think them through. Because I still wake up once in a while in the middle of the night, you know, uh, with one of those old resentments that never die seemingly, never seem to die completely, comes up, and I say, I still hate that son of a bitch, you know? <laughs> for what he did to me, eh? and, uh, and I have to go through that again. I wish I could forget a lot of the things I remember, and I wish I could remember some of the things I forget, you know? 
But it, it just seems to, uh, the right things come up at the right time. That's what I found out. And I see people, uh, I keep looking at Lynn. I can't, I can't help it, you know. She's little enough, you know, that they say you shouldn't carry the attic, but her, I'll, make, I'll make an exception with her, you know. She's little enough for me to carry, you know. But uh, I, I look at all these things going on, you know, and I remember the first time that Lynn came out to California, we went up to the San Francisco Convention. And we walked through the lobby. I was thinking about it yesterday when I got into the lobby. Got into the lobby, and we're walking through the lobby, and she was sort of trailing Betty and I, and uh, we get to the door, the banquet room like this, and she looked in the door, I'll never forget, it was the second door down. She looked in there, and she turned around to me, and tears were coming down her cheeks, and she said, you mean there's that many clean addicts in the world? <laughs> and I said, yeah, and a lot more besides, you know, and it's true here. Imagine how many are not here for clean. Imagine how many are not here. To say I'm almost overwhelmed, but first of all, I have to read a little thing that we have in our little white book, you know. Yeah, my gratitude speaks, you know. My gratitude speaks in action, you know. Not in words so much, you know. My gratitude speaks when I care and when I share with others the N.A. way. Right? That's, that's where it's at. And what is that? What is that N.A. way, you know, for us? Just to help a newcomer, to try to give it away. We're not preachers. We're not teachers, you know. We're not gurus. You know, we're not magicians. We can only offer what we have found and hope that somebody will accept it. We can't do it for anybody, and nobody can do it for us. We must do this ourselves. And that's where the responsibility to ourselves comes in. And I think if we remember nothing else other than that, everything will fall into place. You know? It's uh, the program is too much. The more we talk about the steps, the more we talk about the traditions, the more we seem to confuse not only ourselves but others. We can only take them just as they're written and apply them as best we can a day at a time. The work. Simplicity is such a hard thing to understand, you know. I don't know why it's so hard to understand the simplicity of the program. It's just a work of, you know. Do the best you can with them. We're not all alike. You do the best you can, it'll work for you. We gotta remember one thing. We all have to go to the same lengths to get this program. We sometimes forget that. We have to first stop using, no matter how we do it. And we all have to go to that length. I hear people talk about, well, she's a potential, a potential addict, you know. How the hell do you know? How the hell do I know? Were you with them three o'clock in the morning? When they're wondering where the hell they're going to get something when they run out? You know, I remember where I was a lot of mornings when I was looking for something and there was nothing around. I remember what the panic was. I remember that feeling in my gut, and I've had that gut feeling all my life. Uh, there's a very popular thing has come back into medicine today, and they're talking about people with nervous stomachs because they're into all this stress stuff now, you know? I was in the hospital when I was six years old with a nervous stomach. That's what they called it when I was in the old country yet as a kid. But you know, about that time, I found out what to do about it. They used to send me to the chemist shop 
to get the stuff that the kids had had the colleague, and I sure as hell found out which was a paragoric and what wasn't. Seven years old, you know? And I knew where all the bottles were in. And it was terrible to wonder, what will I put in the bottle and it's nearly all water now, you know? And the poor kids with the colleague were having, were having problems. <laughs> Sound familiar? I come first, right? I remember the ease I felt. I remember how nice and calm I could get. How peaceful. I was always one of these. Hell, if I was a kid today, they'd probably be having full of Riddler, you know? Speeder. I'm a speeder. We're way back. Thank God so is Betty. You know, we speed together, you know? <laughs> That's the way we go. That's the way our minds work. We go till we drop, you know? It used to be a philosophy I used to follow many years ago when I was still in Philly. You know, a friend of mine was the sports editor for the Philadelphia Daily News. And boy, what a boozer that guy was, you know. Ooh, he was a corker, you know. He never ordered a drink, he ordered a pitcher. Yeah, Lance, Lance Curley. And uh, Lance wrote something one time, and I cut it out of the paper, and I tried to live by it. He said there's something like, uh, and of course, symbolically, uh, the booze stands for the drugs. What the hell's the difference in that case? He said, I wish that I was single with a million bucks or so. I'd pack my grip with teacher's cream and far away I'd go. A stock of yacht with 15 blondes and one or two brunettes. I'd manufacture purple nights and party all my bets. How long it lasts, I do not know, nor do I really care. I'd just keep going until I dropped and died from wear and tear. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that was good, you know? Yeah. Go keep going, die from wear and tear, you know? But the disorders that we suffer from, you know, is one of the most serious things, I guess, that man ever has had to face. And thank God, in the last 30 years, we found a program. And it was borrowed from another program. It was adapted to suit the addict. Thank God it works for us. And I tell you, I, the more I look around this room, the more befuddled I get as to what to say. What can I say? It's here. It's in front of me. I wish to God I had a, a camera big enough to take all your pictures. I'd take it home and, and hang it right up in my living room. I really would. You know, whatever, wherever, I think that Chicago's going to be the next one. Hey, they better build bigger rooms. <laughs> No, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, although I can see the future in a lot of things. But about uh, eight years ago, I said one time, the time is going to come when we're going to get so large that we're going to fill the Astrodome. Yeah. And they're going to have to put in extra seats. Gonna to have to put in extra seats down and around the field, you know? Doggone right. I'm not gonna even talk about that. I take everything in threes, though, I will mention that. The way I look at the steps, it made it much easier for me when I could look at them in my way, so that I could understand them as best I could, with the limited amount of brain power I had at that time. And I separated them into trinities because it seemed to me all my life things go in threes, you know. They always seem to go in threes. Physical, the mental, the spiritual, you know. The body, the mind, and the spirit. And uh, I found out that with the steps, 
when I looked at them in the simplest form, they sort of came in threes too, you know. The first three steps I, I finally figured out were the conditional steps. These were the things that I had to have. That was my base before I could even really make any move. And I got stymied right away because the second and third steps didn't apply to me. I couldn't believe in any higher power, you know. I wasn't really an atheist. I wasn't really an agnostic. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a Jew and I wasn't a Muslim. I, I don't know what the hell I was, you know. I was befuddled, bewildered, and, uh, and be damned, I guess, you know. And I figured, well, I can't make this, but I'll take that first step and I'll give it the best shot I got. I just ain't going to use it and I ain't going to drink no more. I see if it works for me. And uh, then I figure from that, they told me, and the first thing I ever heard was, it was God as I understood him. See? Now, I never played hooky from school in my life. I loved school. I wasn't a very good student by many standards, but uh, and I worked hard for what I had to learn. But I uh, never played hooky from school. But I played hooky from church every chance I got, you know. I just couldn't, I just couldn't go for it. It got to a point where my family's a very religious family and uh, deeply into, uh, into religion, deeply into church. And I couldn't understand them. And I used to think, I don't really belong in this family. I, I think there's something wrong. I must have come from somewhere else, you know? Somebody else told me later on, uh, a sister in another, another church organization told me that I came from Mars. I'm inclined to believe her, you know? Somewhere or another, I got here uh, in a strange way, you know. But I could not believe in the things that I was learning as a kid because I didn't see the things that were happening in my life in the same way that others saw them. The things I had been taught meant that my grandmother, my favorite grandmother, and she wasn't going to make it in the religious, from the religious point of view, and I couldn't figure that one out, for she was my favorite, you know. And, and later on, it came to a point where she entered into my new life in a way that I find it hard to explain. She came to me many times in the night when I was trying to figure these things out. What are spiritual values? Are there religious values? Can I accept another religion? I was going from one religion to another, as many of us do, and not finding the answers for me yet. And, uh, and I used to get scared. You know, after I was on the program for about a year and seven months, I went to a meeting one night, and I never really completely fitted into AA. I always felt there was something wasn't just quite right for me there. And I didn't quite seem to fit any place I ever went. I don't know whether any of you felt that. Feel that in your life or not. You know? A friend of mine who was an avowed atheist, and he died an avowed atheist, but a deeply spiritual man, uh, started another group called AA. But it was lowercase AA. Not capital A's, but the lowercase AA. And it was Atheist Anonymous, you know? So I thought, well, I'll go over there. You know, maybe this, maybe this is what I'm looking for. Maybe I can fit in here. Maybe he's got something. I went over there and I ran into trouble. And they hadn't been formed yet. We were just thinking about it. And Rex, I went over and talked to Rex, and he said, you know, you don't really belong here. You know, you're too damn spiritual for us. I went back to AA, and they told me, you're not spiritual enough to really belong here. What the hell is going on, you know? Where do I belong? All my life, I never seem to fit. You I fit here. <laughs> hey, I fit here. 
And I had to learn, I had to learn in the next three steps, being four, five, and six, what they meant. These were the exposition steps for me, the revealing steps. I had to try myself. What was this self that I was that was so bewildered and so lost most of the time? Uh, didn't have a true identity of its own. Uh, what could I find here? And so I got into the third step, as I say, and I couldn't understand that, so I skipped and went to the fourth and started on inventory, and boy, was that a rat race. Oh, God. Some of the people I run around with then, they were so deeply into uh, what they were doing that, that I couldn't understand what they were doing at all. We used to have one dear friend of mine who used to stand up on the podium and tell us all about our 32 defects of character. 32, and the best I could come up with was about five or six, you know. And I said, I used to toss it, Ruth, how can you have 32 defects of character? And she would name them all for me. Down to 32. And I would go home and I'd sit there and I'd think, I can't hack that. How can I take care of 32 defects of character? I had to find an answer. Where did I find the answer? Went back to the religion of my youth, you know. What are the virtues? Faith, hope, and charity are the three virtues they told me about. And that's three. I can handle three, but not 32, you know. So I found out the way you get rid of your defects of character is to practice the three virtues that are known all over the world in every religion, every spiritual way of life. I had faith in this program. I knew it worked, you know. I had very little faith in me, you know, but I had faith in the program. And from that, you know, and I had to hope that it would work for me because I saw it working for others, you know. And the charity I understood is goodwill. The goodwill is the base of our program. It's the base of all spirituality is goodwill. Because from goodwill we grow to affection and sometimes to love. Yeah. I can have goodwill towards you, even though I never associate with you and maybe not want to associate with you. Yeah. I had to figure these things out for me. This is my life I'm talking about. How do I handle it? How do I look at it and get the, the answers I need in order to live? In order to succeed in this business of living? And by continuing to practice faith, hope, and charity, my life began to change. But this one night, I went to a meeting and I was very low. I was very depressed because I didn't seem to be able to find these answers as yet. And I don't talk about this very often. But maybe this is the time to do it, too. <clears throat> I went down to this meeting, and the more the meeting went on, there was about 30 people there, and the more of them that spoke, the worse I felt. The more they seemed to have something going for them, the more depressed I became. And the more depressed I became, the worse I felt. And it must have been evident to some of the ones around that knew me pretty well, because I finally got up as soon as the meeting was over and headed for the door, and two people stopped me. The woman is still alive. She spent a lot of time in the Peace Corps, and she's back in this country again now. And Johnny's dead. But Johnny and uh, and Betty stopped me at the door and said, uh, "What's the matter?" And I couldn't talk. When I get really deep like that, I can't talk. And I just shook my head. I don't know. They said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Are you going home? Are you going to be all right?" I said. Do you want me to come with you? Do you want to come over to our house? What do you want to do? That's the way I would get. I go like that for days sometimes, unable to speak. And uh, I left there and jumped in the car and went home. 
walked into my bedroom. My wife and my daughter was in one bed. My daughter was in one bedroom and my three sons were in the other. And I went into the little place I was holding up in with a few belongings I had left. And, uh, and up to this time, I hadn't been able to, I was so emotionally ill that I hadn't been able to even sit down to eat a meal with my family. In fact, it took me three years before I could sit down and eat a meal with my family. And I was lucky at that, because the psychs told me it would take me at least five, you know. But they'd been wrong before. Right? And anyway, I went home and I got out my German dress bayonet, which I used to carry. A lot of people know me. I was known as the crazy Scott in the San Fernando Valley. I had the dress bayonet, I have it at my side, and I had the loaded gun in my back pocket. And I loaded that, the revolver. And I made sure the knife was good and sharp, and I sat down to wait till the family was sound asleep, because I had already known what I was going to do. And I put my head down on the pillow and figured I'll wait till about 3 o'clock in the morning. By that time, I could kill the boys, shoot my wife and my daughter, and kill myself. And I never felt worse in my entire life. I had nothing left to live for even though I've been trying hard. So I know how difficult it is for some of us to make this program. I've been there, you know. And I sort of went into a sort of a half-sleep, half-trance in the dark, laying in the dark. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning, I imagine, from what I can recall. And all of a sudden, the room began to get a little bit light. And I looked, and I saw something that looked like steps. And up on top of the steps was a great big circle, a big orb. A sphere, like hammered silver. And if I had ever been scared in my life, I was scared then. I didn't know what to make of it. I just lay there, stiff as a board. I couldn't move. And a voice from somewhere in the back of my head and behind that orb said to me, Don't be afraid. And I relaxed. I was told a few other things what to do, and I tried to hedge on what I was being asked to do. And I had mental images of what I could do according to what I was being asked to do. And the voice laughed a little bit and said to me, You shyster, you. Now, nobody had ever in my life called me a shyster, but you know what a shyster is, you know. Shyster is a Philadelphia lawyer. <laughs> But, but the word came from a New York lawyer named Shyster. Spelled a little differently, but that's where it came from. And I knew what it meant, unprincipled. I was going to have my way regardless. And I had to laugh a little bit because I knew whatever this voice was that was talking to me knew me inside out. I couldn't hide anything that I was known. And then I was told what to do. And I, all I could say was, I'll do it to the best of my ability. Now, I can uh, justify, I can explain, uh, and I tried to for months to explain what this was all about. It makes no difference what happened, what the voice was. To me, it was a voice telling me the way I had to go in order to recover. Not just to stay clean, not just to stay sober, but to recover. And there's a big difference between recovery and just staying clean, you know? <laughs> For 24 hours, I knew complete and unadulterated serenity. 
most beautiful thing ever happened to me in my entire life. I knew everything was going to be all right. Everything was going to be all right with me. Everything was going to be all right with everybody else. Everything was going to work out if I would just do the footwork. And part of that is responsible for what we have today. That's the best I can tell you. I'm not going to go into details about it. But that's one of the reasons that N.A. was formed. It's because of that voice that told me what I had to do. <laughs> After all the things that have been going on today, last night, and will be going on tomorrow morning and the rest of the night, you know, one thing about this program, it says that we have to enjoy our life too, you know? I can go and talk to you for 24 hours about this program, you know? I wear people out talking about the program, about what it means to me, you know? But one of the things we have to do is to have a good time, too. That's, this is a social gathering, you know? I'm going to be available in other places at other times, and I'm going to be doing some writing, too, you know? And I want to see everybody have a good time, because that's a big part of life. You know, life is a game anyway, you know? It's a game. I con myself all the time, you know, pretending that it really matters much what I do. It really doesn't, you know. Part of the thing about life is we enjoy ourselves. Providing that, we find that balance between the having, the things we have, and the things we enjoy, and the satisfactions we try to gain, and the area of being, which is what this program is all about. Shakespeare said it. When he wrote the soliloquy for Hamlet, you know, he said it. To be or not to be, that is the question. You know, we tried not to be through drugs for many, many years, and it didn't work. But to be what you are, to be the self that you truly are. Another poet, and I'm going to close with this, another poet said it to me, and I had to go back. I read Alexander Pope when I was in junior seminary years ago, and I enjoyed what he had to say, and he said something that went like this that explained to me, I went back to it and found it in the books. I went back to it so I could understand because it meant so much to me as to what this program and how I think and how I look at things. Find your own personal God, your own power as you understand it. Don't worry about the other persons. I can find the first line, I will read it to you. I'll, re I'll recite it to you, but I can't remember the first line. See? Well, it's here someplace. If you wait just a second, I'll find it. Oh, something else they're going to say. I didn't intend to speak too long anyway, because an old friend of mine used to say, the mind can only absorb as much as the seat can stand, you know? <laughs> anyway, Alexander Pope said, Seek then the self. Presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. Placed on this isthmus of a middle state, a being. A being, darkly wise and rudely great. With too much knowledge for the skeptic side. And too much weakness for the stoic pride. He hangs between. 
in doubt the mind or body to prefer, born but to die, and reasoning but to err. Sole judge of truth, in endless error hurled, the glory, the jest, and the riddle of the world. The greatest adventure that we can experience is finding our true self, no matter how you do it, no matter where you have to go to find it. It was said in the impossible dream. That's what that's all about. Yeah. At least I didn't break down tonight, but I'm so full, you know. That's fulfillment. Spiritual fulfillment is what we were looking for in all those other places. And we got right here. Discipline I hate. I hate all kinds of discipline, you know, and all kinds of authority. And I was talking to a man last night upstairs. We talked a little bit about it. And I said, I look to discipline now very different than I used to. I found out now by trying to understand me and the people around me and the things I'm trying to do. And I try to find that which is proper and right for me to do, to do the right thing for the right reason. Then I give myself as fully to that as I possibly can, given my weaknesses and given my strengths. And I'll say one more thing and then I'm going to sit down. Would you look at another addict or look at yourself? Look on their strength with pride and look on their weakness with compassion. Thank you. in the usual manner, the Lord's Prayer. Let's form a circle if we can, if that's possible. Circle around the table. Let's make it easy. Let's circle around the tables.
right, well, thank you for coming. Um, just a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to share this uh, workshop. I found it, and this subject was very, very interesting. The first time I ever heard a workshop on it was at the World Convention in Baltimore back in like 94, was that right? Something like that? And, uh, it was very, very interesting, and you know, um, I just didn't know where we came from, you know, and, and I thought it was, uh, it kind of tied a lot of loose ends together, and it kind of gave me some uh, clarity of why we're here, really, why I'm here. And uh, that's why I thought it was such a cool topic for a workshop at our convention, and I don't know if this has ever been done in a regional convention before or not, so it's, been, it's very nice to, uh, <clears throat> If you guys show up, um, first off, I'll start off with uh, Bobby H. I'm an addict named Bobby. I'm terribly nervous. I have a, I haven't been in front of a, a mic and narcotics anonymous meeting in a long time. Uh, feels good and feels scary at the same time. Uh, uh, looks like Kermit came well prepared for his part of this workshop today. Unfortunately, your first speaker did not. <laughs> I, uh, I usually try to uh, pray a little bit before I get in front of uh, talk in front of my colleagues and all the uh, and I usually don't try to plan out what I'm going to say or, or anything like that. You know, I usually try to let God share what he would have on me to say to you. I try to let him do it, and I've done that this morning. I'm going to try to bring you, as far as I know, uh, the history of, of this region, uh, basically from memory. Unfortunately, I, I, like all the... A lot of other things in our ties phenomenal. Some of our record keeping is not the best in the world. And uh, uh, we, as, and I'm just like everybody else, I did have uh, a thing that we put together when we put the bid together for the World Convention that had a chronological history. Uh, and unfortunately, we did not keep a copy of the, of the bid and, and all that record, I guess, uh, is somewhere out in the word sad, but I looked through my stuff and I couldn't find it. Anyway, that would have been better prepared had I done that. So I'm going to do this from memory as best I can. And contrary to popular opinion, I have not been around my tights when I was founded. And uh, I was not, I did not get clean in the Show Me region. You know, I got clean in the, what is, what is now the, I guess, uh, the Indiana region. And uh, I came here in, in uh, February of 1984. I, I moved to St. Louis. My understanding is uh, it's like most of uh, the areas in Narcotics Anonymous, uh, along around 1981, we began the discussions about the basic text. And with those discussions, it seemed like NA took off. And I, I believe that what I've been told that there were meetings in St. Louis as early as 1981 and uh, in Joplin, Missouri as early as 1981. I believe those were the only meetings in, in what is now the Show Me region, which was at that time uh, a Mid-America mid region. 
and it encompasses five states, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. And I think in in August of 93, the summer of 93, uh, some addicts from St. Louis, uh, and I want to think, I guess I should back up there a little bit and, and you know, give tribute to those folks who came before us. I think it would be un unwise for us to, to forget that most of us in our early recovery attended Alcoholics Anonymous. We owe a great debt to those people who taught us how to organize Alcoholics Anonymous and how to do the things that we did. So a lot of the things that we did were a direct result of our experience in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the service structure of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that the way we do things, uh, if you look back through the history of this region and other regions, is a direct result of the service structure of AA in those communities. And uh, the other thing that I'd like to say is there's an awful lot of people, addicts, that uh, were in these rooms uh, in the regional service meetings and area service meetings throughout the years that are no longer with us. That uh, we owe, where they are today, I have no idea, but we do owe a great debt of service to those folks too. Some of them were here longer than others. Uh, some of them have chose to use, some of them have gone on to other things. You know. But we, so not one person or any group of people uh, are directly responsible for the growth of this fellowship. I think, uh, as Kermit as will share a little bit later, what really happened around 1982 through 1984 with the basic text was getting written, and it came out in early 1984, and that's when the fellowship just exploded. And, uh, I was real fortunate to arrive in St. Louis in February of 1984, one week shy of my second year playing in my And was real fortunate to be one of those big fish in a small pond, you know, and that I had a couple years clean in a fellowship that was brand new, uh, not brand new, there was probably four or five meetings a week in St. Louis at that time and in the southwest corner of the state in Joplin and the Ozark area that was probably, I know there was at least one group with several meetings in that group, uh, the tradition group in Joplin. And in August of 1983, uh, some uh, addicts from those two areas got together at a place called the St. Patrick's Center down in, down in St. Louis, downtown St. Louis. And they, uh, as usual, we were bitching about you know, what we had to do to keep the fellowship alive and driving from Lincoln, Nebraska wasn't on a high on our agenda to do it that time. You know, it was 12 hours or 15 hours uh, drive to, to in between regional service meetings for a lot of us. And we decided that, or they decided, I wasn't there at the time, but they decided that it might be a cool idea if we had our own region. And, uh, so it was decided at that meeting to form the Shelby Regan, and at that time there were two areas. Uh, I uh, 